The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Expanding Use of Hormonal Therapeutic Strategies in Prostate Cancer, Clinical Evidence and Practical Considerations for Individualized Patient-Centered Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash PNF860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening. Welcome to this peer review program on expanding hormonal therapeutic strategies in prostate cancer. A hearty welcome to the audience here in person, as well as to those joining us this evening online. I'm Dr. Matthew Smith from Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. I have the great privilege of being joined today by two co-faculty, Dr. Tanya Dorr from City of Hope and Dr. Naraj Agarwal from University of Utah Huntsman Cancer Center. Our goals today are to augment your knowledge of the rationale and clinical evidence for hormonal therapeutic approaches, equip you and with the ability to employ optimal individualized treatment plans that incorporate hormonal intensification strategies, and sharpen your skills to support the team-based management of adverse events associated with hormonal therapies. Um, this is a very useful page for the clinicians in the audience. There's some valuable resources to our patients. We can only do so much in the context of an individual clinic visit to provide uh, education to our patients. Here's a number of online resources that uh, you may find valuable to share with your patients. Um, they, they provide patients, helps patients navigate issues surrounding impact of certain AEs on their day-to-day life, uh, as well as patients to actively participate in shared decision-making. I would particularly like to call out Zero, a sponsor of this program. They offer comprehensive support for patients with prostate cancer, um, a lot of educational information available on that site, and uh, many of my patients have found that uh, most helpful. So our first presentation will be by Dr. Tanya Dorf. Uh, Dr. Dorf. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for being here after uh, what have been, you know, jam-packed long days here at GeoASCO. I've been asked to speak on how we're starting to incorporate some of the newer hormonal therapy approaches in the setting of localized disease, high-risk localized prostate cancer. So we know that about 15% of patients who present with localized disease will have some of the high-risk features that are outlined here that you're all familiar with. Um, sort of the D'Amico risk stratification features. And I always like to tell my patient when I'm explaining to them how we use this uh, stratification kind of more so than we use TNM staging almost at this um, phase of disease, that high risk doesn't mean high risk necessarily of death from prostate cancer, but just a high risk of needing more treatments to have a reasonable chance at cure than someone with a lower risk disease. So we can and need to use local therapy. I think there's some nihilism out there that a high-risk localized patient cannot be cured. I think they actually can. But we know from earlier studies of ADT alone versus ADT with radiation, for instance, that you're not going to cure anyone with ADT alone, and their survival is going to be better when we incorporate local therapy. So even if we can't cure them, by incorporating either surgery or radiation in this high-risk setting, we're definitely going to have them do better. But high-risk does mean a high risk of some prostate cancer having already left the primary tumor, and that's where the role of systemic therapy becomes so very important. 
So as we have um, multiple different uh, forms of radiation and surgery um, has evolved as well, our systemic therapies, which is what uh, most of us in the audience perhaps are most interested in, have evolved, and we have more effective hormonal therapies. So the question becomes, how should we be incorporating them into practice for the high-risk localized state? Um, and even more so, I would say we need to start looking at whether we can use some of our more sophisticated molecular tests to help us start to individualize treatment, um, selecting patients who need more or less intensification or deintensification. We've had so many decades, I would say, of treating all the patients with exactly the same amount of treatment. It's really uh, would be great if we could start doing differently. And I think you'll see in some of the ongoing studies that um, there is hope for that in the near future. So I'm going to show you a case just to have in the back of your mind as we go through some of the studies, and then we'll come back to it at the end. So this is a patient of mine who's 65 and presented with urinary retention and a PSA of 36. His biopsy showed Gleason 4 plus 5 with extensive involvement. His CT and bone scan were negative. He did get a PSMA PET, and it was equivocal, as any of you who are doing PSMA PET scans in this setting will probably uh, relate to. We often see things that, that we're not sure of, and um, so we have to make that decision about whether to give them the benefit of the doubt and treat them as localized in that context. But in addition to all that with the PSMA PET, we're really thinking about what is this patient's life expectancy? What are his comorbidities? What is his urinary function, and how does that impact what types of treatments we may choose for him? The NCCN uh, views either surgery or radiation as an option for high-risk localized prostate cancer, um, and we always try to tell our patients that they should be expected to have a similar rate of cure. Um, however, you will note that someone with a short life expectancy might be considered for less aggressive therapy unless they are symptomatic, in which case um, some sort of local therapy might be palliative even if not necessary to help them meet their life expectancy. Um, but you can see that uh, ADT is administered together with definitive radiation for anywhere from one and a half to three years. Um, you can do a brachytherapy boost, um, and then because of some more recent data, abiraterone is also an option for very high risk. Prostatectomy, on the other hand, there's no sort of definite ADT um, as there is with the radiation. However, if there's lymph node a disease identified at surgery, then one can certainly consider ADT, and I would argue based on SWOG 9921, other high-risk groups that are node negative should also be considered for adjuvant ADT especially since, you know, this is very heavily um, looking at radiation as an adjunct, but with radicals and raves, we're um, potentially not offering quite as much adjuvant radiation. So some of the newer data come from this Stampede meta-analysis that was published by Gert Attard and Lancet last year. Uh, so Stampede was this uh, unique trial that included both metastatic and non-metastatic patients. You know, most of our others, like Latitude or Enzymet, were all metastatic. But because the abiraterone cohort, as well as the abiraterone plus enzalutamide cohort, allowed non-metastatic patients, 
those data were pooled to see what the benefits were specifically in that subset of patients. And what the results showed was significant improvements in metastasis-free and overall survival for those who received abiraterone with or without the enzalutamide. And so this opens the door for us to incorporate abiraterone in the treatment of high-risk localized prostate cancer patients. So here's the graphical representation, the Kappelmeier curves for metastasis-free survival. Um, you can see a very strong hazard ratio, 0.53. And the overall survival as well from the meta-analysis, very strong signal hazard ratio of 0.6. So this leads us to a current state where ADT is definitely included around radiation, but the incorporation of ADT pre- or post-prostatectomy remains a bit more of a gray area. And so we're going to look at a number of clinical trials that are ongoing that are hoped to help us better define. And then we have that whole question of radiation by itself or with ADT or not doing radiation until early salvage. Um, but um, we know that neoadjuvant ADT can reduce positive surgical margin rate, so it's not standard, but that's not because there's not a possibility of benefit. Um, and now with these newer hormonal drugs, we're going to see a lot of interest um, and rationale for trying to revisit the neoadjuvant approach with prostatectomy as well. So this is probably the trial that will be practice-changing if it's positive. This is Proteus in which patients are receiving neoadjuvant ADT for six months, either alone, or, sorry, with placebo or with apalutamide. Then they go to prostatectomy, and then they continue for another six months, ADT plus apalutamide or placebo. Uh, the primary endpoints are pathologic CR. Now, that isn't a validated endpoint. It's more of a signal. So also, very importantly, they will be looking at metastasis-free survival. And Proteus was really designed based on a number of phase two trials showing that incorporation of the novel hormonal agents, such as abiraterone uh, or apalutamide, uh, or in some cases both, actually got us to a point where we saw um, some pathologic complete responses. Um, so 10% with abiraterone, 10 and 13% in Raina McKay's um, trial. So it's taken a long time. Mary Ellen Taplin's um, study, which is the one at the top, was published almost a decade ago. Um, but again, these form the basis for Proteus, which will be the more definitive practice-changing trial. Now, as we've heard at this meeting, prostate cancer is not one disease. There are various, uh, various um, genomic underpinnings that can lead to different behavior and open the door to different therapeutic possibilities so this GUNS trial is very ambitious, but this is really where many of us would like to see the field going. Let's try to treat prostate cancer as a different disease based on whether, for instance, there are these aggressive genomic changes, in which case that arm is going to be looking at the role of docetaxel. Um, if there are more changes suggestive of hormonal sensitivity, looking at adding some of our next-generation ADT agents, um, if there's MSI or CDK12, adding um, an immune checkpoint inhibitor. So this um, is all looking primarily at pathologic CR rate. This is signal finding. This won't be definitive or practice changing, but it's going to help us determine which approach in which genomic subgroup might be worth doing a larger definitive trial in. There's an 
uh, unselected um, trial, so not looking at genomics, um, with the CDK4-6 inhibitor abemacyclib. So many of you may know that in breast cancer, there's synergy between um, hormonal agents and the CDK4-6 inhibitors. Um, some preliminary phase one data um, supported the concept and the safety. And so in this phase two, um, high-risk patients will either get ADT, darolutamide, and abemacyclib, or ADT and darolutamide um, prior to prostatectomy. So this is such a great platform, right, for discovery to see um, what is happening in the tissue. PASCR is an, an early endpoint, a signal for um, go or no-go into larger definitive studies. So that was all based on DNA genomics. We also have RNA-based uh, signatures that can help us prognosticate. Not every high-risk patient will have a terrible outcome, just like not every intermediate-risk patient um, will behave the same either. So the Decipher score is a 22-gene panel um, looking that uh, created a signature that can help us differentiate within our clinical risk groups who is at higher or lower risk of prostate cancer progression. They initially validated this to answer the clinical question of whether all high-risk patients needed adjuvant radiation or whether some might be able to wait. So this was before radicals and raves. And what they saw is that if you had a high-risk genomic classifier score, you actually really benefited from adjuvant radiation much more so than if your genomic classifier put you into a lower-risk group. Again, these are all patients who have clinical high-risk features. And after many subsequent validation studies, Decipher was felt to be validated enough to be used prospectively in selecting patients for treatment. So this is the phase three eradicate study. Post-prostatectomy, if you have high-risk features leading to a CAPRA score of three or higher, you do a Decipher. If it's greater than 0.6, then you get into the study. If not, you're out. And then these high-risk patients are looking, uh, are being randomized to an intensification strategy, ADT and placebo or ADT and darolutamide for one year with a primary endpoint of metastasis-free survival. Unfortunately, we just learned that this study will be closed permanently due to poor accrual. I think there's still a lot of ambivalence about using adjuvant ADT in lymph node negative patients, even though, again, I think SWOG 9921 provides some rationale to do so. So unfortunately, we're not going to learn the answer to this trial, which I think could have been quite helpful. However, um, no, no reason to lose all hope. Decipher is still being used in a definitive radiation trial, uh, NRG-GU009. You can see this is a very large trial. Um, and patients uh, enter with high-risk disease features who are going to get definitive radiation. If their decipher is high, they go into the intensification study of two years of ADT with radiation versus two years of ADT with apalutamide and radiation. Now, you might be concerned that abiraterone's not here, and we just showed you the stampede meta-analysis that says it's an option. Um, so I think what's going to happen is certainly lymph node Clinically lymph node positive patients probably aren't going to end up on this study. And it's those others or people for whom, um, for whatever reason, we don't necessarily want to use abiraterone who will enter into this arm. The low decipher score patients go into the deintensification of one year versus two years. Um, and 
I'm really involved in the study and really interested in some of these other endpoints. Of course, we want to know that we're preserving cure, metastasis-free survival, but we're also going to see whether de-escalating allows men to suffer less in terms of cardiometabolic toxicity, how their quality of life is different, maybe testosterone recovery um, after that very interesting session yesterday, and cognitive function. So, you know, when people chose two years, they didn't do iterations uh, of 12 months versus 24 versus 18 versus 36, right? So um, they chose two years, that beat six months, and now we're kind of filling in uh, the gap in between. But using Decipher to really select patients in whom we feel we can do that safely. Another way to intensify would be to not use one of the novel hormonal agents, but to use something else that we think can be radiation sensitizing, such as a PARP inhibitor. So this is another very interesting study that's ongoing in which patients receiving definitive radiation for high-risk prostate cancer who are getting two years of hormones will be randomized to niraparib or not, with a primary endpoint of disease-free survival at two years, but also looking at some later-term endpoints, including metastases. Uh, radiation is complicated, right? There are some groups that do longer courses of um, hyperfractionated, and then some groups are looking more towards those hypofractionated regimens. And so the ASSURE trial was done using ultra-hypofractionation uh, with intensification, sort of as proof of principle, you might say. Um, in this study, they got abiraterone and apalutamide together with their hypofractionated radiation and you can see that 98.4% achieved an undetectable PSA nadir. Um, they did recover testosterone at least to non-castrate levels. This is not normal levels. Um, on average at six and a half months, which is reassuring. And they had, you know, pretty robust uh, biochemical recurrence-free survival. So um, an interesting phase two that allows us to consider intensified ADT even in the context of using hypofractionated radiation. Enzirad is, is a study essentially looking at the role of enzalutamide intensification during radiation for high risk. And you can see they just really have to stratify for all the different variations that you get in radiation, whether there's a brachy boost, whether the pelvic lymph nodes are radiated. Dazzle high cap is a little more complicated study because it allows either definitive radiation or salvage radiation patients. It's a very big study. Um, the primary endpoint is metastasis-free survival, despite the inclusion of these two kind of different groups, um, but they'll be stratified based on whether they're being treated in the definitive or adjuvant setting, or sorry, by a salvage setting. And this is looking at two years of ADT with darolutamide versus placebo, primary endpoint metastasis-free survival. ATLAS is a study um, using apalutamide uh, with a bicalutamide placebo or bicalutamide with an apalutamide placebo. So fairly complicated high-risk definitive radiation with this um, two months neoadjuvant, then concurrent during radiation, and then finishing out um, the full course. From this study, we did get a sneak peek um, sort of at what's happening out there and how are people doing radiation. You can see that overwhelmingly we're still doing more of a standard six to eight week course, but 10% of patients are getting hypofractionated in the definitive setting and 6% are getting brachytherapy boost. So helpful for um, planning of additional trials. So let's go back to our case. 
now that our heads are spinning with all the options for different systemic intensification and radiation uh, strategies, um, he, remember, presented with urinary retention. Um, so when I talk to patients about radiation versus surgery, one thing I'm saying is, you'll have an equal chance at cure, but how will you be urinating? How will your quality of life be? And we kind of look at the two local therapy modalities in that context. Um, in terms of comorbidities, you know, if he had seizures or falls, I wouldn't want to put him on an AR antagonist. Um, there are some other comorbidities like arrhythmias where I might not want to use abiraterone. Um, co- anticoagulants, you always have to check for drug-drug interactions. Um, and then, you know, making sure they have adequate social support to get through whatever treatment we propose. So this patient actually enrolled on NRG GU009. Um, his decipher score was high, so he got put into the intensification cohort. He was very nervous about getting the apalutamide, um, but fortunately for him, he was randomized to control. Um, and so he got his biclutamide run-in, his LHRH agonist, and um, has completed radiation at this point and is doing well. So in conclusion... With radiation, we definitely use hormone therapy, and all these trials are looking at the role of intensifying, um, and some of them are looking at personalizing using genomic classifiers um, to potentially break out groups that can have less therapy in addition to all these um, intensification studies. Abiraterone is an option in the context of definitive radiation for very high-risk disease based on the Stampede meta-analysis. Um, But you saw all those other trials ongoing that will give us additional data and options. And um, the neoadjuvant trials related to prostatectomy, in particular Proteus, may end up changing the way we approach these patients. Right now, we usually take them straight to surgery. um, But in the future, it's possible we will end up incorporating systemic therapy perioperatively. So stay tuned. Whichever type of hormone therapy our patients get, we all know they struggle with a lot of side effects. So referring them to zero can help them find resources for financial struggles, getting co-pays on these expensive medications, as well as sort of that emotional and peer support as they face however many months or years of these quality of life altering side effects that ADT does induce. So I recommend that you refer patients um, to this uh, great opportunity for additional support. So with that, I will turn it over to you. Thank you, Tanya, for a great presentation. Um, And really liked your case. This is a common problem we face now, and I'm glad to see that your patient uh, enrolled in a clinical trial. In the absence of a trial, or if you elected not to do a trial, what, what would you, how would your care, what would your standard of care have been in, in such a patient? So um, I am not using abiraterone across the board in my high-risk localized. I think you could make a case for it in someone who's got really bulky disease where you really want to um, know that you're killing more cancer, as we see from the neoadjuvant studies you do when you add the novel hormonal agent. So I think I would have talked to him about Abby, but I probably would have ended up just doing kind of a more conventional um, two years of, of ADT with the definitive radiation. So you're, I'd say, equivocal on the stampede data. For this patient is very high risk, right? PSA 36, Gleason, I think 5 plus 4 in all cores. 
Um, I Again, I would have spoken to him about it. Yeah. But given how nervous yeah. he was about apalutamide, he probably well, would have ended up saying well, no. Well to said. You have to, you have to meet, we, have to meet the, <laughs> we have to meet our patients where they are. Naraj, do you agree? Would, would you, how would you have treated a, a similar patient in your practice? So we do occasionally use uh, abiraterone for locally advanced or high-risk prostate cancer following the stampede criteria. So this patient is close to 40 nanogram per mil of PSA, 36. Uh, has a Gleason score, which is high, and um, uh, and then looks high risk uh, overall. So I would probably offer abiraterone, at least we'll bring this in the, in the discussion. Yeah. So Tanya, I have a, a little bit of a provocative question for you to, to end this session, but in that same page, a similar patient, if the PSMA PET were not equivocal, but showed clear, let's call it, you know, small burden of metastatic disease, how would, what would you have recommended in, in that case? So in that case, absolutely. They're, they're metastatic. If you really believe the PET scan is positive, then he's metastatic and low volume. Um, I do treat with abiraterone, uh, treatment to the prostate primary, like radiation. And I probably would do metastasis-directed therapy, which is not evidence-based, but something I think okay. <laughs> a lot of us are doing yeah. in the low-volume setting. We just try to maximally treat the disease we see to try to get patients into a, a good, good deep remission. Yeah, and I asked that question. I, 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 I would, we would manage the, a patient like that in a very much similar way. And I think it speaks to the convergence of treatment, right? So if he was very high-risk or regional-risk, he gets prostate radiation, nodal radiation, ADT, and probably a second drug, right? So if it's low-volume metastatic disease, he gets almost the same treatment. Maybe you don't radiate the nodes, um, and perhaps you radiate the metastases. So it's a remarkable convergence of treatment, and I think it speaks to the value of PSMA PET to help kind of distinguish uh, where the patient is in their disease state and, and to optimize uh, treatment decisions. Yeah, but also exposes sort of the gaps. You know, the PSMA PET has um, kind of outpaced how the data can keep up with how to manage them. So it does pose some challenges. But I mean, essentially, we will um, better define who actually is metastatic versus who is localized. Yeah. Naraj, you, you get I the last a, word. Yeah, <laughs> I have a feeling like if you look at the Stampede trial patients and if PSMA PET was available when the trial was being conducted, and if you had done the PSMA PET, I bet many of them would have low-volume metastatic disease on the PSMA PET. Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent point, and we, of course, know this to be true in a similar or analogous situation, non-metastatic CRPC by conventional imaging, if you look at that patient population with PSMA PET, or similar patient population, nearly all of them have detectable metastatic disease. So thank you for that uh, great discussion. And move on to the next section. Uh, so this is my case, patient with de novo uh, MHSPC, 57-year-old man with screening PSA of 37. This was a real case. It's not meant to <laughs> contradict Dr. Dorff's presentation. Prostate biopsy showed Gleason 5 plus 4 and 4 plus 5. MRI reported confluent pyrids 5 lesions throughout the peripheral zone extending to the apex of the base and a probable metastasis to the right iliac bone. Uh, technetium bone scan reported uptake at that same location and he had a PSMA PET that showed these two lesions, so the right iliac metastasis uh, another metastasis in his cervical spine, and additional metastases in multiple ribs, which are not shown on these images. 
So think about that case as I, as I uh, walk through uh, the management of metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Historically, this group of patients have poor clinical outcomes with short interval to disease progression and short overall survival. Survival is related to the type of presentation, de novo versus recurrent, location of metastases, and extent of metastatic disease. Uh, we have clear level one evidence that intensification of systemic treatment improves overall survival. Disappointingly, though, despite that consistent and compelling level one evidence, the adoption of treatment intensification in the United States has been poor, and most patients continue to receive ADT alone for metastatic prostate cancer. This is data from the Stampede trial control group making the point that patients treated with ADT alone have a poor clinical outcome. These are about 1,000 patients enrolled between 2005 and 2014 treated with ADT alone. Uh, Event-free survival, failure-free survival was about a year, and overall survival is only about 42 months. Uh, The event-free proportion is related to sites of metastases. The same is true of overall survival with patients with soft tissue metastases, typically lymph nodes doing the best, bone only doing worse, and those with both bone and soft tissue doing the worst. Um, This is making, again, the case that uh, the sort of predictors of overall survival, in this case by presentation and extent of metastatic disease. This is the control group from Charted and Gatug 15. Patients with de novo high-volume metastatic disease have an overall survival of about three years with ADT alone. De novo low-volume, four and a half years. Recurrent high-volume, about the same. And patients with recurrent low-volume disease um, have an overall survival of about eight years. Uh, And then um, U.S. hospital registry data tells us that about more than half of patients with low-volume MHSP, HSPC are recurrent metastatic disease, um, and only about 15% of patients relapse with high-volume disease after surgery or radiation therapy. That probably speaks some to the biology as well as the fact that we can monitor these patients with PSA and typically intervene with three-staging early. This is a fairly remarkable set of data summarized on this slide. Um, All but one of these studies uh, showed an overall survival benefit in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, Um, so collectively involved um, nearly 10,000 patients uh, in these trials, so really remarkable set of data, uh, and has dramatically moved the field. We now have to see that this evidence is adopted in clinical practice. Um, the first studies to look at intensification moved docetaxel into the MHSPC setting. Two of the three trials reported overall survival benefit, although subsequent analyses have shown that it appears that that benefit in overall survival is limited to the so-called high-volume subgroup of patients. Um, a series of trials then looked at AR pathway inhibitors and showed consistent overall survival benefits in favor of intensification. That's true of abiraterone, enzalutamide, and apalutamide in combination with ADT compared to ADT alone. In contrast to the docetaxel experience, the survival benefits in the case of AR pathway inhibitors appears to be similar across the spectrum of prognostic groups, including high versus low volume disease. And then what I'll talk some more about tonight will be these more recent trials that have looked at so-called triplet therapy, looking at 
In the case of Aricens, ADT docetaxel and der- derlutamide compared to ADT and docetaxel alone in piece one, looking at the triplet of abiraterone, ADT, and docetaxel. I'd also be remiss for pointing out that we can improve survival not just with drugs, but with radiation therapy. Stampede Arm H showed that prostate radiation appears to improve overall survival um, in, in patients, at least in the low-volume subgroup of that study. So it's something to consider, and we sort of covered that a little bit in, in the hypothetical case that we've reviewed uh, earlier. Uh, the, the adoption of uh, intensification, regrettably, in the United States has been poor. A population-based study, report, for example, uh, from 2014 to 2019, reported that only 12.7% of patients had received intensified systemic treatment. That's been validated in other experiences. Uh, and so we clearly have a lot of way to go. I would say the target is not 100% of patients receiving intensification because there are patients who appropriately may receive ADT alone. Those would be particularly older, frailer patients with significant medical comorbidities, as well as patients who have particularly good prognosis disease, for example, low-volume nodal disease that recurs many years after primary uh, treatment. Survival benefit um, with, in this case, abiraterone acetate is compelling. This is long-term follow-up data from the Latitude study and the, stamp, and the stampede arm looking at the addition of abiraterone acetate to standard of care, showing this clear, compelling improvement in overall survival with the hazard ratio of 0.66 and 0.60, respectively. This is a big treatment effect. Similar um, Magnitude of benefit was seen with other AR pathway inhibitors. Shown here are results of the Titan study of apalutamide, Arch's trial of enzalutamide, and the Enzymet study also looking at enzalutamide. There are a number of factors that should contribute to treatment decisions. While a lot of focus has been paid to this issue of disease classification by de novo versus recurrent, high volume versus low volume, or in the case of the latitude trial, high risk versus low risk, we also have to consider the patient in front of us uh, as an important part of decision-making, not only their wishes, uh, which are critically important, but also their age, life expectancy, comorbidities, concomitant medications. Um, Those are going to have significant roles in deciding whether intensification is appropriate and further what agents might be preferable uh, should intensification be considered. There are a number of disease characteristics that I alluded to, and those things really need to be considered uh, carefully in making decisions, but it's not just as simple as classifying prognosis by volume or risk or de novo versus recurrent. In Aerosense, we uh, looked at the triplet of ADT, docetaxel, and darolutamide. Um, it's important to note the history of this study because at the time the study was designed, Shortly after there was confirmation that docetaxel improved overall survival in MHSPC when added to ADT, so we elected to take the winning arm of the previous trial and make that the control arm of our study, so we took that bold approach. And we also felt that given that overall survival had been demonstrated with docetaxel to really make a difference, we should use a primary endpoint of overall survival. So that was the approach. Eligible patients were randomized to... ADT and docetaxel, docetaxel for six cycles, plus darolutamide or placebo. 
The primary study endpoint was overall survival with a number of key secondary endpoints, including time to castration-resistant disease, time to subsequent anti-cancer therapy, event-free survival, and time to SSE. So here's the primary analyses that were published last year and led to FDA approval of darolutamide in this setting. Um, compared to placebo, darolutamide significantly improved overall survival. Uh, the median uh, survival in the placebo group was 48.9 months, very similar to the historical experience with ADT and docetaxel, not yet reached in the triplet arm. The hazard ratio is 0.68. Uh, and that, as you can see from the p-value, is highly statistically significant. Um, we stratified patients in that study by de novo versus recurrent metastatic disease, and in pre-specified and planned subgroup analyses, there were similar benefits in the poor prognosis de novo dis- disease as well as in patients with recurrent metastatic disease with very comparable hazard ratios of 0.71 and 0.61, respectively. I should say that there was consistent benefits across all of the other pre-specified subgroups as well. At the time we reported that data, there was a lot of interest in, by the community in what the results, how the results would be by other subgroup analyses. So kind of based on group interest, uh, we looked at a number of uh, exploratory subgroup analyses and Dr. Maha Hussein presented this data yesterday So we did high volume versus low volume and high risk versus low risk. Um, And as you hopefully can see in this very data-dense slide, that there's consistent benefit really across all of these subgroups, um, sort of confirming the observations that were previously reported. And I would say not at all surprising because the magnitude of the benefit was large in the intention to treat population. And there's a lot of overlap in these risk classification schemes for high-risk or worse prognosis disease. Uh, Darolutamide also showed benefit in a number of key secondary endpoints, including time to CRPC and time to pain progression. PEACE-1 is another study that provides important information about so-called triplet therapy. Uh, PEACE-1 is a bit more difficult to explain. It had to -to 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 one-to-one-to-one-to-one to one, randomization between standard of care, standard of care plus ABI, standard of care plus prostate radiation, or standard of care plus prostate radiation and abiraterone acetate. Further, the standard of care changed during the conduct of the study. Initially, it was ADT with, and with docetaxel at the discretion of the treating physician. About midway through the study, that was changed to require docetaxel. And then the triplet, triplet therapy, ADT, docetaxel, and abiraterone, was a subgroup analysis of the patients who, were, who received docetaxel as part of standard of care. Uh, this is the docetaxel again, subgroup uh, in the trial. This is radiographic progression-free survival. Hopefully, uh, here we go. Overall survival here. That's the primary point of the trial, um, showing a hazard ratio of 0.82 in the overall population, compare that to 0.68 with uh, Aerosens. And then in the docetaxel population, which is more comparable to Aerosens, the hazard ratio is 0.75, um, showing that benefit. Um, so now back to our case. This is, again, 57-year-old man with screening PSA 37, extensive localized disease, uh, confluent pyreds, five lesion in his prostate, um, 
bone scan with a solitary bone metastasis, but PSMA PET showing additional sites of disease. So, Dr. Agarwal, what do you think? How would you manage a patient like that? So, patient has metastatic disease on the PSMA PET, although we do not know if any of those trials... Uh, so, I'll come to the point. This is... We don't have the evidence from the bone scan, or bone scan did show, right? One bone scan and MRI showed a solitary, so it showed a single metastasis, that's the one that in the pelvis, yes. and PSMA PET revealed additional sites of disease. So this is a very common, commonly emerging situation in the clinic. Do I call it high-volume disease, or do I call it low-volume disease? So I tend to look at the accrual criteria for those multiple trials you have shown just now, and I will call it a low-volume disease based on conventional scan, and I'll treat this patient as a low-volume metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And, and just for, can you clarify what that would mean in your practice? Yeah. So low-volume patients, uh, if they have intact prostate, they are considered for prostate radiation, and they are also considered, obviously, we use a novel hormonal therapy like abiraterone, apalutamide, or enzalutamide, and if they have less than five sites of metastasis in the bones, we also consider oligometastatic radiation therapy. So in this case, patient will be a candidate for receiving radiation therapy to the prostate, radiation therapy to the one site on a right iliac bone, and starting ADT with one of the novel hormonal therapies. Very good. And, and do you have a preference among the agents? It is mostly driven by the affordability, cost, copay, and drug interactions. So patient is, so we first rule those out. Are there differences in the effectiveness between those agents in your best judgment, recognizing we don't have large randomized controlled trials to ask that question? Um, no. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Dorf, what do you think? So if I'm being honest, I would treat this patient as high volume um, because of the PET findings. If I look at it and it really looks, you know, there is already one definite bone met um, on conventional imaging, but there are many others that are probably real. So if I really felt they were real, um, I would offer, and he's also 57, I'm going to offer intensified systemic therapy. I'm going to talk about triplet, see if he's willing to do chemotherapy. Um, I would be okay with doublet because, um, you know, the role of the docetaxel has not actually been measurably proven because of the designs, as you elucidated, for the triplet trials. And um, we do have ongoing triplet trials. Like we have an institutional metastatic hormone-sensitive trial with ADT Abbey and telezoparib. Um, so, you know, I'm always looking at clinical trials as a valid option. I would consider treating his primary if he gets into a very good remission. For instance, I would consider if he doesn't go on my, my PARP triplet trial, and it, let's say we give ADT docetaxel and abiraterone, for instance, um, I would consider putting him on like SWOG S1802, where there's a randomization of cytoreductive prostatectomy or not, uh, or definitive radiation of the prostate or not. See, there is a difference of opinion among two high-volume prostate cancer oncologists uh, right here. So this is a challenging situation. And I think uh, as the time goes, uh, by next year or next two years, we will be increasingly relying on 
hopefully biomarkers. If this patient has P53, P10 loss, RB loss, at least uh, two of them, I will be more swayed towards uh, uh, using chemotherapy in my real, real practice. So I'm bringing in more nuances to our discussion. And I chose this case deliberately because I recognize there are a lot of controversial aspects to this. This is not an unusual case, though, I would add. This, we're seeing these kind of patients on a, a regular basis. This particular case has all the attributes that make it particularly, let's say, controversial. We have a long way to go in manage, optimal management of this disease, but I'd also say we've come a long way, right? Because if we were had the same conference 10 years ago, there would be consensus to treat the patient with ADT alone. Continuous. Continu- People will be talking about continuous versus intermittent. In yeah, those so, days. so we have come a long way. Uh, so there's agreement on the principle here that we're going to intensify therapy with at least ADT and an AR pathway inhibitor, maybe docetaxel. Not everyone would agree on that point. Um, and treat it, likely treat the primary, um, particularly in a young patient with high volume disease. I think that was roughly the consensus between the two of you. And that's, that's actually... We gave this patient triplet therapy and treated his primary and the, the pelvic bone met just because, you know, while you're there, you might as well go after that. But radiating his cervical spine metastases and ribs gets to be a little bit, then a, a little bit more morbid. You could argue whether it was required to treat the pelvic bone metastases. I, I wouldn't disagree with Dr. Agarwal for going after the other metastases, but uh, we have a lot. To, we do have, to have a lot to learn in the in the in the role of metastasis directed therapy. But there's a lot lot of principles in this case. I think we can take away from and, and hopefully we're helpful to the audience. So with that, we'll now doc, ask uh, Dr. Agarwal to uh, present his. Sounds great. So it's already getting exciting. More exciting with that case. So uh, I'll be talking about PARP inhibitors and um, so emerging therapies, uh, PARP inhibitors in combination approaches and how they are being applied to earlier disease situations, so hormone sensitive setting. And we will also, I'll also touch base uh, on cell cycle pathway disruption or CDK4-6 inhibition uh, as an emerging potential therapeutic option in our patients with metastatic prostate cancer. So first of all, who should we test? And I often find it difficult to completely like obtain a very extensive family history uh, in a prostate cancer patient. And especially when we are really relying on the memory of a patient who's already exhausted after driving three hours to reach to the cancer center, sometimes they are driving even more or they are feeling exhausted, burdened with the diagnosis of prostate cancer. So these criteria criteria are there. We have to technically follow them. But I have made it easier in my clinic. All patients with metastatic prostate cancer, pretty much all guidelines tell patients, tell us that patients with metastatic prostate cancer should have germline and somatic tumor testing. So I do that for all patients. And if I look at high-risk very high risk, regional, and so, so many other categories. And if I'm not able to rely on, say, family history of prostate cancer, I go ahead and get the germline testing done. If germline testing is positive, then patient see a genetic counselor. So it used to be opposite. Patient used to see genetic counselor first, and then germline testing used to be sent. 
and we were losing 30 to 40% patients who were not actually seeing germline, uh, genetic counselors. So we reversed that and we are now sending genetic testing or germline testing from the clinic. And then if they are positive, they see a uh, genetic counselor. And regarding somatic tumor testing, it's uh, decision-making is easier. I do, a, 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 we sent the patient's tumor to, for comprehensive genomic profiling so that I don't have to worry about obtaining each one of those mutations on a piecemeal basis. It is often cheaper for patients to get, say, foundation medicine testing or Tempus or Caris testing. There are so many testing companies which are offering pretty much high level of deep enough tissue testing that I find them very acceptable. So every single patient with metastatic prostate cancer undergo some kind of comprehensive genomic profiling of the tumor. So take-home message, all patients with metastatic prostate cancer should go uh, under, undergo comprehensive genomic profiling and germline testing. And then if they are positive, genetic counseling is recommended. So let's go to the amplitude trial. This is one of the ongoing trials where patients with newly diagnosed metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer who harbor germline or somatic homologous recombination repair gene alterations. These patients are being randomized to abiraterone acetate plus ADT. So androgen deprivation therapy and abiraterone acetate are the backbone. And then niraparib is being added to the experimental arm. And please note that niraparib dose is 200 milligram as opposed to 300 milligram daily. Uh, because of the interaction with uh, uh, abiraterone or because of the uh, toxicity profile of niraparib and abiraterone. So this is a dose which was chosen in the later trial, which was magnitude trial, which I will be talking about in a moment. So based on those results, niraparib dose is 200 milligram in this trial. So this, the primary endpoint of this trial is investigator-assessed radiographic progression-free survival, and secondary endpoints, key secondary endpoints are overall survival, symptomatic progression-free survival, and time to subsequent therapy. And this is a relatively large trial. 788 patients will be enrolled. This is TALAPRO-3 trial. In this trial, uh, a very similar strategy. Patients who have newly diagnosed metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer, they are being randomized to enzalutamide and androgen deprivation therapy versus androgen deprivation therapy plus, plus enzalutamide plus thalazoparib. And thalazoparib dose is 0.5 milligram in this trial based on the pharmacokinetic studies which showed the thalazoparib level to be increasing to twofold uh, in plasma level compared to when, you, when we use thalazoparib as a single agent and because of pharmacokinetic interaction with enzalutamide. So based on that, talazoparib dose is 0.5 milligram, and this was also the dose in the TALAPRO2 trial, which I will be talking about in a moment, uh, plus enzalutamide. So in this trial, patients are stratified by de novo versus uh, relapse disease or metachronous versus synchronous disease, as we call them nowadays increasingly, and high versus low volume disease, and then BRCA versus non-BRCA mutation. Primary endpoint is, um, again, we can see here, radiographic progression-free survival, and multiple key secondary points include overall survival, objective response, the responses, 
and time to PSA progression. So this is, these, both these trials are ongoing, and we are really hoping to get results from these trials in next, uh, hopefully in next uh, one or two years. And if there are, those are positive, we have some more treatment options for these patients who have HRI gene alterations in the hormone-sensitive setting. So now let's move on to the metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer setting. There, were, there are three trials which have been reported now in this context. Number one is PROPEL trial. Here I would like to start with PROPEL trial. It was reported last year in the ASCO-GU, exactly one year ago by Dr. Fred Saad and Noel Clark. And in this trial, first-line metastatic CRPC patients were enrolled. Docetaxel was allowed in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting. However, abiraterone or other novel hormonal therapies were not allowed in the castor-resistant setting, but they were allowed in the prior sensitive setting as long as they could have stopped it. They stopped it more than 12 months prior to enrollment. So some nuances in the design, differences in the design of these trials, but bottom line is these are all first-line MCRPC studies where patients could not have received any treatment for castor-resistant disease. And these patients were randomized to abiraterone plus olaparib, 300 milligram twice daily, versus abiraterone plus placebo with continuation of androgen deprivation therapy. The stratification factors were site of metastasis, the bone versus visceral, and prior taxane, yes and no, in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting. Primary endpoint is radiographic progression-free survival, and secondary endpoint was overall survival. So these were the results which were presented last year in the ASCO-GU. And uh, the results showed that the combination of abiraterone plus olaparib significantly improved radiographic progression-free survival in this all-comer population, uh, regardless of homologous recombination repair gene-related mutations, compared to abiraterone alone. And the median radiographic PFS was 24.8 months, in the experimental arm with olaparib and was 16.6 months in abiraterone-only arm. And it, by the way, this trial exactly mimicked the data or RPFS benefit from the earlier phase two trial, which was presented about four or five years ago. I think that trial was called Study 8. It was presented by Dr. Noel Clark and published in Lancet Oncology. So in the... Bottom line, what is the message here? That these patients who were unselected for HRR alterations, they seem to benefit with the combination of abiraterone plus olaparib versus abiraterone in MCRPC setting. The patients were not prospectively assessed for HRR gene alterations. Retrospective assessment was done. And we can see here, if you look, at the bo look into the box, the radiographic progression-free survival was more pronounced in patients who had HRR mutations versus who do not have HRR mutation. So if you look at the hazard ratio of 0.54 in the HRR-positive patients, it was basically 50% uh, reduction in risk of progression or death versus patients who did not have HRR alterations or gene alterations, there was 25% reduction in risk of progression or death. So we did see difference in the level of benefit depending upon the underlying HRR status. If you look at the objective responses, these were confirmed objective responses. They were higher in the abiraterone plus olaparib arm. 
The final OS data were presented yesterday uh, by Dr. Clark, and this was the late-breaking abstract. And we saw here that uh, although median overall survival in this all-comer population was improved by seven months in the abiraterone plus olaparib arm, this was this did not reach the statistically significant level. And hazard ratio was 0.81, favoring abiraterone plus olaparib. And this was a secondary endpoint. And we can see here very clearly there seemed to be a survival benefit, but it, is, did, not, it did not meet statistical significance. So moving on to the magnitude trial, very similar trial in a way that patients are being randomized to abiraterone plus niraparib, another PARP inhibitor, versus abiraterone. All these patients were in first-line MCRPC setting. Some nuances in the... Uh, uh, as, uh, as, was a difference, uh, as far as trial design is concerned, these patients, some of them were, uh, actually these patients were allowed to have received abiraterone for four months prior to starting protocol therapy. So as opposed to PROPEL trial, which did not allow any abiraterone or NHT in the castration sensitive, sensitive setting, this trial allowed abiraterone for up to four months in the castration resistant setting. Also, a big difference, despite the apparent similarities, they were prospectively assessed for the presence or absence of homologous recombination repair gene alterations. And then, those are clearly two different cohorts, HRR-altered patients versus HRR-negative patients, and they were independently randomized to the combination of abiraterone plus niraparib versus abiraterone plus placebo. The HRR negative cohort enrollment was planned for 600 patients, but was halted after 200 patients after investigators assessed no benefit of the combination of abiraterone plus niraparib in this HRR negative patients. And then trial continued accrual in those 400 patients in the HRR biomarker positive patients. Radiographic progression free survival was the primary endpoint. And we can see here that uh, the radiographic progression-free survival was improved in the uh, BRCA1, BRCA2 subgroup and all patients who were HRR mutation positive. So here we have the values. Radio RPFS was 16.5 month. This was median RPFS in the Nerapare plus abiraterone arm. And it was 13.7 month in the abiraterone plus placebo arm with a 27% reduction in risk of progression or death. If you look at the responses, we can see that responses were improved in the uh, HRR-positive patients and more improved in BRCA1 and BRCA2 patients. So BRCA1, BRCA2-positive patients seem to derive more benefit versus other HRR-positive patients. So we are not talking about any HRR-negative patients here. We are only talking about the patients who were HRR mutation, uh, gene mutation positive. And among those patients, BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutated patients seem to be deriving higher level of benefit. And now this is a longer follow-up, which was presented by uh, Dr. F. Stachu in, uh, in one of the oral presentations yesterday. Uh, and here we saw the longer follow-up in BRCA1 and BRCA2 patients, so patients who had BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. And we can see here that uh, radiographic progression-free survival in the second pre-specified interim analysis continues to show 
benefit with a combination of abiraterone plus niraparib versus abiraterone with a hazard ratio of 0.55. So almost 50% reduction in risk of progression or death in patients who are BRCA positive. I did not see the report on other HRR mutation positive in this presentation. So let's come to the TALA-PRO2 trial, which I presented yesterday. This was the third trial in this string of three trials where uh, these combinations were tested in first-line MCRPC setting. So this was again a phase three trial, a pre-phase three part one phase uh, assessed or estimated or uh, basically est uh, assessed the dose of talazoparib in combination with enzalutamide. And in that trial, we determined that talazoparib dose should be 0.5 milligram in combination of enzalutamide because the plasma level of talazoparib in presence of enzalutamide rises two folds compared to talazoparib monotherapy. So once the dose was determined, this trial moved to the phase three portion or randomized portion where patients in first line MCRPC, they could not have, uh, were randomized to these two arms of enzalutamide plus talazoparib versus enzalutamide plus placebo. Patients could not have received any treatment in the castration resistance setting and they had to be mildly uh, or asymptomatic. And stratification factors were receipt of novel hormonal therapy in the metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer setting and whether they were positive for DDR alterations or non-deficient plus unknown. And he, the reason the unknown patients were in clubbed with non-deficient patients in this stratification factor is because at that time when the trial was being conceptualized, it was based on the real-world evidence. Uh, we estimated that there will be around 20 to 30% patients who, despite prospective tumor tissue testing, will not be able to, will not be able to have their HRR status determined. And based on that, because if you just look at the real-world prevalence of HRR mutations, 20% are positive, 80% are negative. Based on that, they were put together with HRR negative patients, and this was agreed upon with the regulatory bodies. So just some extra discussion beyond what I discussed yesterday. Primary endpoint was radiographic progression-free survival. Key secondary endpoint was overall survival, and time to PSA progression, time to chemotherapy, and so on and of course, quality of life. So we can see here the primary endpoint was met in this all-comer population where RPFS was uh, 22 months in the uh, enzalutamide plus placebo arm, and it was not reached in the experimental arm with talazoparib with a hazard ratio of 0.63, 37% reduction in risk of progression or death, and this happened after two years of follow-up. If you... And just uh, looking at this box, investigator-assessed review was very similar to independent radiology assessment. The hazard ratio by independent radiology was 0.63. It was 0.64 in the uh, investigator-assessed assessment. So pretty consistent benefit. If you look at the benefit by HRR status, so HRR deficient versus HRR non-deficient or unknown, we clearly see higher magnitude of benefit in patients who are who have homologous recombination repair gene mutations. Uh, the, there was a 54% reduction in risk of progression or death with a hazard ratio of 0.46, favoring enzalutamide plus talazoparib arm. 
in the HRR negative or unknown status patients, there was a 30% reduction in risk of progression or death. Based on the discussion last year after the PROPEL trial data were presented, we decided to do an exploratory analysis of only those patients who, had, who were HRR non-deficient, so they could not, who were not found to have any HRR gene mutation based on prospective tumor tissue testing. So there were close to 400 patients in this group. And when we look at the radiographic progression-free survival benefit, it is clearly present. There was a 34% reduction in risk of progression or death in the thalazoparibon compared to the control arm of enzalutamide plus placebo. So yes, benefit is present in both subsets of positive and negative, but magnitude of definite the benefit is different. So let's look at the CDK4 and 6 pathway inhibition in prostate cancer and how the, this strategy is, has emerged over the last uh, three or four years. So we know that CDK4-6 pathway, and I'll make it simple, I won't go through this uh, picture uh, right now. We know that CDK4-6 or cyclin D pathway is relevant in multiple cancers. And in breast cancer, there are three CDK4-6 inhibitors approved, which include palbociclib, ribociclib, and abimaciclib. Abimaciclib is also approved in the adjuvant therapy in early-stage breast cancer. And all these three other uh, three CDK4-6 inhibitors are approved in metastatic breast cancer. So this is the background. We also know that this pathway has relevance in prostate cancer and metastatic prostate cancer. So this is an ongoing trial in hormone-sensitive setting. So this is called Cyclone 3 trial, where patients with uh, newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer are being randomized to ADT plus abiraterone plus placebo versus ADT plus abiraterone plus abimaciclib. There are some key eligibility criteria which I would like to highlight. And that include high risk, and that basically these require patients to have high risk metastatic hormone sensory prostate cancer. And risk criteria is more than four, four or bone, four or more bone metastasis on the bone scan, and at least one visceral metastasis on the CT scan or MRI. So if a patient has four or more bone metastasis, they're eligible. If the patient has one liver metastasis, they're eligible. If they are both, they are still eligible. So they have to have, they have to meet these high-risk criteria. And stratification factors are de novo versus relapse metastasis, so synchronous versus metachronous metastasis, presence or absence of visceral metastasis, and whether patient received prior docetaxel chemotherapy in the uh, hormone-sensitive setting. Primary objective is radiographic progression-free survival, and key secondary endpoints are radiographic progression-free survival, castration-resistant prostate cancer-free survival, so time to delay in castration-resistant disease, time to pain progression, and time to deterioration in health-related quality of life. So this trial is in progress. Dr. Smith has this trial uh, in progress abstract in this uh, meeting, and uh, we encourage you to refer patients for this trial. In fact, this trial will soon be one of the very few trials which are open in metastatic hormone-sensitive setting. And these patients' uh, trial eligibility criteria are quite relaxed, 
except that these patients have to have meet these high-risk features. So let's go to the castor-resistant trials with the same uh, combination. So there is a phase two, three, cyclin two trial, and this is a schema of this trial in front of you. This trial was started about four years ago, and uh, there was a lead-in phase of 30 patients where all these patients who had to be in first-line MCRPC setting, so they could not have received any life-prolonging drug for metastatic CRPC setting, in the metastatic CRPC setting, and the dose of abimaciclib was established first in this trial, and then, and as you can see here, then the trial moved on to the randomized portion. And in the randomized portion, the patients first enrolled in the first 150 patient cohort to make sure there was some benefit. And pending benefit, the trial was supposed to be, supposed to move to the larger phase three portion. So a lot of stages in one trial. I think this is a very pragmatically designed trial where we are not, uh, where the investigators are not wasting time in designing one protocol and then activating that protocol and moving on to the next protocol. Uh, this is basically a continuation of one trial evolving from dose finding strategy to phase three portion. So trial has completed accrual and uh, primary endpoint is radiographic progression free survival. And we are hoping to see the results in the near future. And if the trial is positive, we'll have one more option for patients who have newly diagnosed metastatic CRPC or castor resistant prostate cancer in our clinic. So before I conclude, I again want to highlight the role of Zero. Uh, this uh, organization is, uh, has been very helpful to the patients at different, uh, uh, facing different challenges with the diagnosis of prostate cancer when they are receiving treatment, when they are not able to afford the co-pays, when they need a uh, uh, multitude of uh, support. Uh, this uh, organization is trying very hard to support our patients. So this is the information on this, uh, of, uh, of this organization, which also helps with uh, uh, getting diverse group of patients on clinical trials, which is one of the top priorities by regulatory bodies uh, at present. So uh, please keep in mind that Zero is an organization which is there to support our patients and uh, encourage our patients to seek help from them. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Agarwal. That was terrific. So in the time we have remaining, we'll try to uh, address some of the questions that have been posed by the in-person and online audience. Um, so Dr. Dorf, I could ask you a question that, that, the, that we received from the audiences. Are there patients with metastatic prostate cancer who do not require intensification? In other words, could be, you know, would, that you would advise to be treated with ADT alone? And if so, what are the characteristics of such patients? Metastatic. Metastatic. Um, I do have the rare patient who I feel is um, too frail or has too extensive comorbidities, um, but they're not very many, to be honest. Um, even sometimes patients with fairly significant cardiovascular disease, I've gone back and forth with their cardiologist and have um, felt that it was worth intensifying because not only do they live longer, 
Um, but there's better control even in the short term, right? So uh, especially if they're symptomatic, um, I think it you have to really try hard to find a reason to not intensify. But for instance, I have a patient um, who had had a recent stroke and I was very concerned about using um, the androgen receptor antagonists in that patient. Um, there was some reason, I don't remember exactly why, we, we felt a little concerned even using the abiraterone. So it's not to say I never use monotherapy, but it's it's got to be in the single digits percentage-wise of my metastatic patients. So you very thoughtfully commented on like the patient characteristics, older age, comorbidities, frailty. Are there disease characteristics, like are there features of certain presentations of metastatic disease that would also tend to support ADT alone? Mm, not that I can think of. Dr. Agarwal. Yeah, so no disease characteristic can justify not using intensification anymore, in my view. And I think that is supported by the data. Patient characteristics, of course. So if I estimate the median overall survival of a given patient to be less than two years, now of course nobody has the crystal ball, but we all are treating patients in our clinics. And uh, patient have, so any anytime I think patient is probably not going to survive beyond two years, I have a very high threshold of bringing up intensification. So these patients have congestive heart failure, uh, end-stage diabetes with multiple complications of diabetes, and uh, say stroke, I saw a patient with uh, massive stroke and couldn't uh, really, uh, was not able to be ambulatory, was mostly bedridden. Uh, We couldn't justify uh, intensified ADT. But these are less than 3% patients. No, I appreciate it. So I share your view. We really, you know, the, the standard of care really now is intensification and you, and you need to think of reasons, you know, you have to find a, a good reason not to do that or, and certainly need to have that conversation with patients. Kind of a related question we got from the audience is, are there settings for which you would have such a good response? So a patient, say, with metastatic disease, won't specify the details, who has uh, a PSA decline to undetectable on ADT and an AR pathway inhibitor has side effects of treatment. Are there situations where you would agree to discontinue treatment or even go so far as to say recommend treatment discontinuation? Dr. Agarwal, you want to take that first? Yes, of course. So answer is not yet. Uh, We have to address this question in a clinical trial. So we often see patients in our clinic who start bicalutamide, then ADT. Two months after or six weeks after doing a routine follow-up, they have a PSA of 0.2 or, uh, you know, one or two down from, say, PSA of 800, just a uh, scenario. And patients often ask, Doc, why should I start anything else? I'm doing so well. So answer is we have to, I do talk to them about all these intensive intensification strategies. And current standard is, all these patients should be receiving intensified ADT. Your question on whether some of these patients can drop one of the components, either intensification part or underlying ADT, castration part, is there a possibility? Answer is yes. I think there is a potential to do that in best responders, but we need clinical trials to answer that. And I do think there are, you know, highly selected patients where that could be more attractive, particularly in that we talked about treating the primary and and limited sites of metastatic disease. And patients have had radiation to all identified sites of disease. 
think it, it does may lend an opportunity to discontinue treatment for those who've achieved a complete, res- complete PSA response. Uh, we also received a question, very humanistic question is, how do you help your patients handle three therapies? Do they feel overwhelmed? So I'll take part of that. I think uh, as clinicians uh, and, you know, who've been practicing for a long time, we can't help but sort of relate history to patients in describing our treatment recommendations. But I think in some ways I, you need to get away from that. And I have in my own practice, when we first had evidence for intensification, I would feel compelled to tell a patient, you know, we used to give ADT alone and now we have evidence to do X, Y, and Z. And so we're going to have that conversation. I think the evidence now is so compelling for addition of an AR pathway inhibitor that my, that when I'm meeting a patient, particularly de novo metastatic disease, I say, we're recommending hormone therapy. For you, that's going to be two drugs. It's going to be an injection. It's going to be a pill. You choose your AR pathway inhibitor. And as we get to know each other in coming weeks, we're going to make a decision about whether and when to also add chemotherapy in someone, say, with particularly poor prognosis, a de novo metastatic disease. And I think that really makes the conversation easier if you make it seem like they're all options, like it's a you know, menu choices, I think it can be quite challenging for patients and overwhelming because we're not recommending ADT alone. So just make it easy on the patient, tell them they, they need hormone therapy with two drugs. Um, that at least addresses some, I think, the decision-making in terms of how they manage that. I'll maybe ask Dr. Dorf to comment on her experience with triplet therapy. Well, I just wanted to clarify something you said. So you start the doublet and then you wait a few weeks to bring in the chemo, um, is, is that, yes. like, what's your common time frame for when the chemo would start in that scenario? Yeah, so my reason for starting, particularly with poor prognosis disease, as an example, like high burden de novo metastatic disease, symptomatic, it's just we've decided they're going to get at least a doublet, right? And, and I prefer to give them a triplet. So just to make that easier, the drugs require insurance preauthorization. They start their ADT, send in a prescription for their AR pathway inhibitor, in the trial, in Aerosense, for example, that's how it was done. And then docetaxel would be started within six weeks. I don't feel obligated to do it in that short of a time interval. I'd rather have a little time to get to know the patient and understand how they tolerate ADT and their AR pathway inhibitor alone. If you were to start all three literally simultaneously or in very short order, then it can be very hard to disentangle side effects of treatment and what the tolerability issues are. It's a lot of, a lot for patients to take on emotionally and medically. So I prefer to space it out longer than six weeks. Um, many of the patients in Aerosens also, you know, would have started their ADT a month or two before they entered the trial. Then they'd add, der- then we'd add darolutamide the- or placebo, and then they got chemotherapy, but that had to be within six weeks. I'm very comfortable with doing it longer in mo- many, in the docetaxel trials, that interval was considerably longer from start of ADT. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight that because I thought that was a very interesting point. Um, I think the other thing I try to do in helping patients with what is so complicated, especially if you're using abiraterone and then there's the prednisone and there's the with food, without food, it get, it's a lot to discuss. And then with docetaxel, there's the pre-medication with dexamethasone the day before the day, right? So it does become overwhelming. I um, sometimes will have my nurse practitioner or my pharmacist come in and spend additional time beyond what I can do um, with the patient going through, like reviewing, you know, educating even more about the treatments. 
And I try to save some aspects uh, for later because I tell them we're going to be meeting very often. Um, so things like the genetic testing, things like bone supportive agents are sometimes um, saved in my clinic for the second or third visit so that it's not so completely overwhelming. I really focus on like what you said, the backbone of the therapy, introducing them to the possibility of triplet or a trial, um, and then filling in the the rest of my checklist, the, the bone density and the um, genetic testing maybe for another day. I like that approach. And, you know, I, even the most sophisticated patients, when I meet them, I will tell them the following is, we, you can't learn, you will not, you can, we cannot do this all today. It's not possible, um, nor should we try. And we're going to get to know each other very well. And you're going to have plenty of time to sort this out. But here's what we need to cover today. And, and um, you know, here's the plan for what we'll address in coming visits. You have any pearls of wisdom, no, Dr. Very, Agarwal? Very similar experiences. Yeah. yeah, what I find remarkable in these forums and others is how we kind of independently arrive at some similar themes in, in how we manage what I think are very complicated problems. So I think we have time for just a couple of additional questions. Um, along the same theme with um, M, HSPC, some of the other trials that looked at AR pathway inhibitors allowed chemotherapy. They were not specifically designed to address that question, but some of them did it in a different way, which was they got the chemotherapy in and then went on to the AR pathway inhibitor. Dr. Agarwal, do you have a preference of how you do it in, um, in that setting? Uh, based, uh, for, uh, just follow the evidence, uh, which has so far shown that there is no ro role for docetaxel followed by initiation of uh, AR pathway inhibitor. Uh, we saw results from the subgroup. Obviously, they were not powered, but in the ARCHIS trial, in the TITAN trial, None of those subsets where patients got docetaxel first, followed by these novel hormonal therapies, they don't seem to be benefiting. On the other hand, we have PEACE-1 trial and RSN trial, uh, which show concurrent administration of docetaxel plus novel hormonal therapy to improve survival. So if I do triplet therapy, uh, we do them together. Okay. Any closing thoughts? Um, no, I think uh, we've hit on a lot of the complexities of these patients. I think the imaging piece becomes uh, very difficult um, as we're getting the PSMA PET scans. And, you know, all of these trials used conventional imaging to categorize patients. So um, although I had a different response to your scenario that you posed, um, truly, we're, we are um, meant to be basing our decisions on conventional imaging, as hard as that can be. But I would emphasize that some of the most exciting options for patients are going to be clinical trials. Um, you saw a variety of them in the presentations today. Uh, you know, we don't want docetaxel to be the only option for a triplet, so we really need to support these other trials that are looking at additional targeted agents in the upfront setting, uh, because everything we move forward seems to just amplify the benefit. And it will be great if we have different options and not just one, one type of triplet to offer. Thank you. Dr. Agarwal, any additional thoughts? I, the best treatment for our patients are clinical trials. That's the, for, for most of the patients. Thank you. Yeah. So I really appreciate um, sharing the stage with the terrific uh, faculty. 
Uh, thank you, Dr. Dorf. Thank you, Dr. Agarwal. Thank you very much for your attention. I wish you a uh, rest, good rest of your evening. Thank you very much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Zero, the End of Prostate Cancer. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerreview.com forward slash PNF 860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC, and Lilly.